0: of Jesus Christ, and this morning we're going to be continuing with a parable. Last time we focused on the miracle of of Jesus as he calmed the storm. This week we're going to be looking at a parable that Jesus shared about two kinds of, of, of ways to live in the midst of storms, if you will, and so turn your Bibles to Matthew 7, Verses 24 through 27 is what we'll be reading today. But before we get started, it's a unique challenge in this series on miracles and parables. Because, you know, although the miracles are fantastic and they're easier to see the glory and the majesty of Jesus, sometimes the parables can become really familiar to us. They can become like these flat, dull Lifeless flannel graphs, you know, if you will, that you remember from your childhood, and they become like stories or fairy tales. And so it's a challenge not only to to preach a parable, but to hear a parable. So this morning, I'd like us to intentionally and deliberately set aside kind of any notions that we've had, any of those cutesy stories. And remember that when Jesus told the parables, he didn't tell them as if they were a fortune cookie to be opened up. Um, he didn't tell them as if they were uh, a warm fuzzy tale, as if they were supposed to be chicken soup for the soul. That's, that's not what the parables of Jesus Christ are about. The parables are always meant to confront us. The parables are always meant to provoke us to thought, to get us to challenge our conventional way of thinking, to To confront us with the truth of who he is, what his kingdom is like, what does it look like to live as a member of his kingdom, and then for us to contemplate, how am I supposed to respond to this story? Where am I in the story? How am I to respond to the story? And then, what will my response really look like? It's meant to challenge us. So this morning, let's listen to this very familiar parable, thinking through, how does this challenge my own thinking, And then how might I respond in light of it? Let's read Matthew 7, 24. This is God's holy inspired word. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because its foundation it had been founded on the rock and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would hear this parable anew, that we would receive this as your authority, as your words. God, would you awaken our minds, illuminate us, Lord? Would you open up our hearts, God? Would you give us a desire to respond to you because, Jesus, of what you have done for us and in our place? God, I pray that you would give grace to all who hear and give me grace as I speak this morning. God, I am desperate for your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, I know that all of us are desperate for your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, we ask you now, good Father, gracious Father, would you, would you give us the gift of your Spirit? Would you pour out your Spirit richly on all of us, on me and all who hear this morning? God, we need you. And we ask for you to be with us this morning in a special way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well. Way back in, in 1889, if you're a student of history, there was the worst flood in U.S. history. It was the Johnstown, Pennsylvania flood. There had been a severe rainfall for several days, and the south fork of the dam broke, and it unleashed 20 million gallons. I don't know if you can fathom how much that is. That's greater than the volume of the Mississippi River at once. Its 20 million gallons were from the Lake were released along with an already flooded river. It rushed through the valley, kind of going, going mile after mile, pummeling small towns along the way until finally when it got to Johnstown, there was a 60-foot-high wall of water and debris rolling. And, it, and, and the observers in that day said it, it just looked like, looked like the land was moving because it was so full of debris. But a 60-foot-high wall of water approached the town at 40 miles an hour. It was, it was the worst flash flood in U.S. history. 2,200 people died in, in relatively an instant that day. Talk about a, a horrific flash flood, something unexpected, completely unprepared for. You know, the idea of flooding is it, common and in South Carolina. It's not the one that we, we don't deal with. But we, we've not dealt with flash flooding like that. We've dealt with, okay, we have, we have floods and rivers overflow. And last October, I think I have a picture of it. We had a flood last October. And down in Columbia, it, it created a lot of devastation, a lot of loss. It, it washed away the roadways in Colombia Because the, the roads underneath, underneath the roads was a softer sand. And they hadn't built up walls around things. And so a lot of the roads just washed away. Well, around the world, that same phenomena is very common. In, in Israel, they have these dry gulches that they call wadis. And in these wadis, they are normally you know, barren and dry for a season or two. And sometimes it can go for many years or up to a hundred years and they can be dry. But all of a sudden we get these winter rains. And these winter rains will fill up these wadis and these floods will come along and they'll wipe out anything that's not built securely. And I, and I think that's the kind of imagery we're meant to have. I think it's the kind of picture that the, the early hearers had in mind was of these, these devastating, rushing floods. These quick floods, and and actually all around the area where Jesus taught, there were these kinds of wadis, and they were susceptible to unexpected flash flooding, and and at times over the centuries, people would would build their homes on the banks of these wadis, thinking that the, the ground was solid, because it seemed solid, but when these floods would come, it would wash away the homes, and that was probably the very kind of imagery that Jesus had in mind as he told this parable. And so it would have been immediately understandable. It would have people would have immediately gotten the meaning of it? It was. Not, it's not that complex of a parable, really, but the parable is heavy hitting. Most of Jesus's parables are really heavy hitting. They they have a surprise. They they have some things that are make us sit and question. What what are we really thinking? What are we really doing? How are we how are we behaving? And I think these these words that Jesus set up, he set up two diametrically opposed ways of living. That's what he's doing. He's setting up two diametrically opposed ways of living. He says, You can have one way of living, and that's going to result in standing firm. And that was based on what he says everyone, everyone then who does these words of mine will not fall. And then everyone who does not do these words of mine will fall. So he's setting up this, these contrasts, these diametrically opposed contrasts of two ways of living. And I think we're meant to ask ourselves, how am I living? Am I? Where am I? Am I in the everyone who does the words of Jesus? Or am I in the everyone who does not do the words of Jesus? What, where would I be? And before you too confidently answer, the people in that day would have been relatively good people. But he sets up these diametrically opposed ways of living. And so it seems that the real obvious point out there is that, that doing the words of Jesus, it's critical. Doing the words of Jesus, it's critical. He sets up this, this critical contrast. You have people who do the words of Jesus and those who do not do the words of Jesus. And this isn't just the cutesy song, He Who Built His House on the Rock. I couldn't sing it, but my, my daughter was singing it to me um, last night as she walked out of my study. You have to ask, though, what does Jesus mean when he says, everyone who does these words of mine? What does he mean? Everyone who does these words of mine. Does he mean that, that just these words he's talking about in this passage, does he mean something else? And, and what does it mean when he says, if you do these words, then you'll stand firm, or you do these words, and you'll fall? Where we, where we, the context is really helpful in a passage like this. You see, this parable, it comes at the end of, of, of a longer sermon. One of the longer recorded sermons in the book of Matthew It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, he, it began in Matthew 5, and it concludes really with this verse. This isn't just a parable on its own. It's not a standalone parable. It's a parable in a context of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot of things in the Sermon on the Mount about how to live and what does it look like to be a, a part of the kingdom? And, and I want to set the context for this. Where is Jesus when he's giving this? Well, it says in Matthew 5 1 that he, great crowds have been following him, and so he goes up onto this mount. It says, and when he sat down in Matthew 5 1, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. And then you read that Jesus opens up with what we call the Beatitudes. It's just another way of saying, here's what kind of person is blessed by God. And then he goes from there to talk about a call for greater righteousness. And then he goes in the following verses to tell his disciples about what does it look like to truly live for God. And I don't know about you, but if, I've, if you go back and read the Beatitudes, and if you read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and then Matthew 6, you're realizing, wait a minute, what, is, what does it really mean if if the pure in heart are blessed, I know that I don't have a pure heart. And most days I'm, I'm aware that my heart doesn't feel pure. So what does it mean that doing Jesus' words are critical if I, if I can't do those words? If I can't do that? And so he, he goes on, though, and he talks about greater righteousness. and He talks about living for God. Then, chapter 6, Jesus talks about what it looks like to pray. And when you pray, pray like this. But don't worry about what you're going to be clothed by. And he talks about how to rightly view money and don't be living for material goods and for the things of this world. And then he goes on from there to saying not to be anxious about any of these things. And I'm thinking, well, I can't do that. I often worry. You ever feel like that? You ever You ever say, wait a minute, if I'm supposed to do the commands, if that's critical, I don't have a pure heart, I fail. I don't I don't pray as I ought half the time. I worry. I have anxiety sometimes. And you know what? Sometimes I'm I'm living as if this world and the possessions matter. So what does Jesus mean when he's talking about living and doing his words? Everyone who does these words, he's unequivocal. He says, everyone who does these words. What does he mean that is critical when everybody who does these words either stands, or if you do not do those words, you fall? the end of chapter 6, Jesus, he he ends with uh, an entreaty to his disciples, and he says in in verse 33, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And I think, well, wait a minute. Am I really seeking first the righteousness of God and all? Yeah, sometimes, maybe half-heartedly. Although sometimes I desire to seek first his righteousness. I don't do that all the time. Anybody here ever always do the words of God? See these parables are meant to challenge us. They're meant to make us think. End of at the really the end of this discourse, towards the end of the discourse is teaching in Matthew 7.12, Jesus gives what some people call um, really the, the golden rule in Matthew 7.12. He says, So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also for them. And then I evaluate my heart and I say, wait a minute, whatever I wish others would do for me, do I do for them? Well, no, and actually this past week. I was not doing very well by a couple members of my family. I was being impatient and unkind. And, and I come into my room and I find that on my on my glass, she didn't know I was going to be preaching from the passage right after this, but on my glass, one of my daughters had taped the verse and it says this verse, so then whatever you wish others would do to you, do also for them, for that's the law and the prophets. <laughs> um, funny and convicting. Um, only funny now. Um, so, so it's critical that we do the words of Jesus, but if you read it in context, you would be thinking, what does that mean? I get it, Jesus. You're saying it's critical, and but what does that mean? Do I have to do them perfectly? What does that look like? Does it look like always doing them? We see Jesus. He's speaking to his disciples, and He's speaking to people who have listened to his words, who have come to hear his teaching, who acknowledge him at least as a good teacher and somebody to be followed. Let that sink in for a moment. He's not talking to people who don't know who he is, who haven't heard him speak. He's talking to people who are there to hear him. And and really, the primary audience here is his disciples. Maybe some religious leaders of the day were present, and I would Guess that they were because they were always sneaking in trying to spy him out and betray Jesus. In any case, Jesus tells this parable and, and after he's just explained it at length what it looks like to live as a disciple, to live under his kingdom, rule and reign, and you know, some people call this whole passage of Matthew 5-7 to as the Christian manifesto or the kingdom manifesto. This is what it looks like to live as a member of God's kingdom. And then after he explains what it looks like to follow him, he closes his sermon and really this passage is the third of three illustrations, the last of three illustrations that he says, okay, I'm giving you all this teaching about what does it look like to be in the kingdom? And that's important. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to know what does it look like to live as a part of his kingdom? And then he closes with three illustrations in this parable, really is the last. But the first one he closes with is he says... There's a narrow gate, and there's a wide gate. There's a, there's a hard way to come in. That narrow word, it actually has a connotation of tribulation. There's a, a way to come in that is it, that difficult, and very few go that way. That's the hard way of doing the works of God, following Him the righteous way. There's the, the broad way, the way that seems easier that, hey, if I just do what I know is good, and I take the easy way, and I... I live by what I know, and I live what the Pharisees tell me. That's, that's the broad way. And then he gives another few illustrations of good and bad fruit in verses 15 through 20. And so by the time you come to this illustration, it's very clear that fruit matters. It's very clear that it's critical to do the words of Jesus. You know, you can't ignore the teaching of Jesus and, and, and claim him as Lord And it still be true. Imagine that you were hired, or you and I both, we were hired to. Go downtown to Greenville. And if you've ever been to Falls Park, they have a beautiful landscaping all around there. And it's one of the things that my family enjoys the most is all the beautiful plants and how they vary from season to season. They're always replanting different things. And it looks like it just kind of magically happens, but it doesn't. There's a lot of workers there. We've been there at times and we've seen them digging up all the old bulbs and putting new ones in or digging the old flowers up and putting new flowers in. They're constantly watering and spraying. And imagine that you were hired to be those people, to be the landscapers. Falls Park and to tend the park and to, uh, to take care of the plants. But instead of tending Falls Park, imagine that you just go down and you enjoy the day. And during the middle of the day, you're like, hey, I've got this great job. I'm downtown at the park. Hey, kids, come on out and we'll play. And you play all day at the park and you enjoy your time there. Or maybe you go up at that, uh, I think it's called La Passerelle restaurant up there and you sip some coffee and you, you overlook the beautiful venue and, and you see the people going by. And this goes on all summer long. You say that you work there, but all summer long you just kind of enjoy the benefits of it and do no work. Well, you might get away with it for a while, the first summer maybe, because everything's already been planted and they have watering systems and, yeah, things look a little brown, but, you know, not so bad. We're getting rain this year and, you know, everything's okay. But by the end of the year, end of the, end of the summer, it would become evident you've done no work there. You really aren't an employee. You're an employee by name only. And so your boss, when he would come there in the fall and see that the, no plants had changed and now everything's dead, he's going to fire you. He's going to let you go because you're not really an employee there. You can claim to be something, but it actually, you're actually doing that and you're carrying out that role. You're not that something. You're not an employee unless you're doing the work, unless you're actually honoring your employer to say you love Jesus. But don't obey him, it doesn't make any sense. To say to Jesus that I'm your follower, but I'm not, I don't bear any fruit, that I'm not going to actually work to take up my cross daily and follow you, then you're not really his disciple. That's the message Jesus is trying to get across. Your work should follow who you are. It's a natural outflow of, of who you've been made to be. Now, you're not hired to be a disciple of Jesus. you, You come to him and you place your faith in him and he makes you anew. But if there's no work, we're meant to question, are we really disciples? Are we really followers? Can we just say that? You see, work is critical. Fruit is critical. Not just knowledge about Jesus. Not just knowing who he is. Not even calling him Lord. And so... If you say you love Jesus but don't obey him, it doesn't make any sense. If my kids said that they loved me, but then every single day, and I don't mean sometimes, but every single day they disobeyed me and mouthed off to me and disrespected me, and then when I asked them to pitch in and do chores in the family, they said no and they refused to do them, I would begin to think they didn't really love me very much. So in this parable, when Jesus says, everyone who does these words of mine, he's referring to what he's just said in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's pretty heavy. If you're a Christian, or if you're a follower of Jesus, you think, wait a minute, if doing the words of Christ is critical, am I really doing those things? He says, everybody who hears these words of mine and does it, that's one type of person. The other type of person is everybody who hears these words of mine and does not do them. So clearly, whether we're a bang Jesus or not is absolutely important in the Christian life. That's meant to provoke us. This is a provocative parable. Jesus said lots of hard things like this. Work's important, but clearly, once you see something else, both types of people build in this parable. Both types of people are building in this parable. They're building a house. They're building a life. They're building something. They're working. Even people who don't trust in Jesus work. But the second thing I think we're meant to see is works are not the goal. The works are not the goal. We, we, we work, and there must be evident fruit in the life of a believer in Jesus Christ. But what makes the difference in our works? It's something else, and we're going to get to that in a few minutes. Jesus is saying we have, must live a life of obedience, but it's where that obedience comes from and why we obey that matters. You know, it's clear, Jesus was not about looking for nominal disciples. And if you are in this church and you are living in the South and, and you grew up in a Christian home and you are not really definitely sure that you're bearing fruit, this message is meant to challenge you. Just like it was meant to challenge those hearers who were hearing the Old Testament, who knew the law, who knew the prophets, who were following what the Pharisees said, it was meant to challenge them. He says, hey, are you really doing my words? But what we're also meant to see is that the works are not the goal. Yes, the calling to follow Jesus is an all-encompassing, radical call to good deeds and mighty works. But but their deeds done in relationship to Him. You see, He wants disciples that in everything that they do through their relationship with Him and in their relationship to Him, they worship Him in their works. Our parable is not just a nice story about how we need to be like the wise man instead of being like the foolish man. It's about two ways to live with dramatically different consequences. And it, and it begins with saying, Everybody who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man built on a rock. And, and so at least he's referring to the immediate words he's just talked about and the warning of doing the importance of doing the Father's will based on knowing Jesus. It's not enough to have knowledge of who Jesus is. If we're not responding to him. And then in Matthew 7 21, the words right before it, just two verses before our passage, reading the Bible in context is key. Two two verses before our passage, he says, Not everyone who says to me, this is after a a long string of talking about following God, what does it look like to follow him, what does it look like to live in the kingdom. Does it look like to live a life blessed by God? He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father is in heaven. You know, I, I am, you know when I was a kid, I was terrified of this verse. Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Wait a minute. I say, Lord, Lord. I think that's his point. He's meant to provoke us in this parable, because right before it he's saying, "Not everybody who, does, who, who, who says, "Lord, Lord Anticanty, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven." And then he talks about, what does that will look like?" And he says, "On that day many will come to me and say, "Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name?" And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Did you notice a few things in that verse right before this parable? Notice a couple things. Look down in your Bibles if you have them, or look on the screen. Is Jesus contradicting himself in the same passage? He says, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven. But then he says that people did mighty works in his name. What's going on? What's going on? What? What is he talking about? He says you have to do the works of my Father in heaven. You have to do, actually it says, the will of my Father in heaven. It's not about the mighty works that we do. It's about are we, are we seeking to do them, willing to love the Father, desiring, saying, God, I want to do what you will. Like he taught us in and the prayer in the middle of this, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Whatever works we're doing, are we submitting them to him as praise, as, as worship to him? And is it done, really, in the context of something? And look at verse 23. What's the context that we see this passage is in? He says, depart from me, I never what? Anybody? I never knew you. I never knew you. So it's apparently possible to do good works and still go to hell. And it seems to hinge on a couple things. It seems to hinge on whether we're doing these works based on His will or for His will. And are we doing these works in response to knowing Him? That's where we find this parable. It's critical to do good works. But they're meant to be done in response to our relationship with him? Do we already know him? We're not trying to earn favor. We're not trying to attain favor. We're not trying to get his goodwill. We're doing things in concert with his will because he's, he's already known us and made us his children. We know him, and so in response, we work. So we know, though, in, in verse 26, he says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand. I think we're meant to. to Take inventory of our lives and say, why am I doing what am I what I do? Whose will am I pursuing? Am I saying, God, I want your will to be done in my life? Is that the motivation of my heart? Do I have a relationship with God? You know, it's possible to admire the teachings of Jesus. Mahatma Gandhi did. He, he admired the teachings of Jesus. He just didn't submit to him as his Lord. He said he's a great moral teacher, but that's not who Jesus was. Jesus demands, demands our lives. He demands that we submit to him as Lord. And we say, your kingdom come, your will be done, Lord. Not responding to the words of Jesus and his warning to do the will of the Father and to know him. It's like building your house on sand. It could be that you're building a nice looking home. Maybe you're here today and you've built a really good looking home, a good looking life. The home is symbolic really of of life. And maybe your house is nice and you do good works and maybe you take up worthy social causes of social justice and those are good things. Maybe you help the poor who discriminate against. Maybe you're generally religious and you try to do what's right. Those are good things, right? And those are actually included in the Sermon on the Mount. But maybe you're building all these things and you're living a morally upright life and you have integrity and, and you're honest and you care about other people. You know, I've got some neighbors that they're really nice people. I don't, I don't know if they love Jesus, but they're just nice to be around. You know, and I bet if there was a need and I went knocking on their door, they probably would help out. We've got a neighbor two doors over, he's got a big farm, and I'm guessing that if we were going hungry, I could go over and, and say, hey, can I work for you, work on your farm? And he would probably pay me in produce, because he's, he's a good man. I don't know whether he loves God or not. You know, maybe you do a good job at work, and maybe you take care of your friends and family. Maybe you're a good provider for your family. Those are all really good things, right? Right? Maybe you've built a life for yourself that seems solid and that no one can see any cracks from the outside. And, and in comparison to other people, you might be a good person. But this parable is meant to challenge us. Not just are good works critical, they are, but, but more, it's more about really something else. It's, it's the motive, the heart of the matter that matters. It's whose will are we seeking to be done. It's whose kingdom are we living for. It's do we know Jesus, and do our works flow from a relationship with him? The key difference in the two types of people, these two different ways to live, if you think about it, they're both building, right? They're both building, and it's good to build. It's good to build a house. You know, I like homes. I I live in a home that was well-built, um, the outside of it and the structure is all well built. It, we got it as a foreclosure and we finished it up. But why we had faith to buy the house in the first place is because it was, it was built on a good solid foundation. A few years earlier we had skipped over another house because it looked gorgeous on the inside and it was well appointed and it looked phenomenal and had all kinds of trim. It was painted really nicely. But when we crawled in the crawl space, we were just about to buy it, the final inspection, and it had cracks everywhere. I thought, whoa, no way we're taking that house. We're not even going to bid on that house. We walked away from it. The difference between the two places, the one place that we ended up buying that didn't look very good on the inside, it wasn't finished, it it was was really the foundation, the bones of the house, the structure was secure and solid, and and, and that's what this this passage is meant to show us. The right foundation is what matters. The right foundation is what matters. One man built his house on the rock. That's why it didn't fall. The other man built his house on the sand. That's why it fell, and his fall was very Great. But what's this foundation that he's talking about? I think it's found in that verse we already read. When Jesus says, Depart from me, you never knew me. It's it's not that they weren't doing works. It's that they didn't know Jesus. The question for all of us is, do, Do we seek to know Jesus? Is our work for him motivated by what he has done for us? Now, if you have read anything else in the New Testament, if you read the rest of the teachings of Jesus, if you read the, the writings of the Apostle Paul, you know that he surely cannot be talking about works saving us. But what I think he's talking about is what James says. You know, if you tell me you have faith but no works, I'll show you my faith by my works. What he's saying is not that works earn any righteousness. It's not that works give anything to God that He doesn't already have or that somehow earn favor before Him. It's that our works are a demonstration of where our foundation is, of where our faith is, where our hope for life is. Our works are a demonstration that He's made us alive. That we're placing our hope for life in Him. There's something else going on here too He's talking about two groups of people, and I think his early hearers would have gotten it. Do you hear a high-pitched ring, by the way? Okay, it's not just me. I thought I was going deaf or something. I don't have a hearing aid, so I'm thinking, what is that? Um, Do I need to change out my batteries here? Can you change them out real quick? We're really grateful for the guys who serve us, who always feel a little awkward in these moments, but thank you for serving us, thanks for helping. I'm sorry for the buzzing noise, hopefully just persevere with me. Just imagine your, uh, your grandfather in the room, he forgot to turn his hearing aids down. So <laughs> my my dad did that a few weeks ago. And he was up, and the kids and I were all just trying to figure out, what is that loud noise? And we're like wanting to hold our ears and plug our ears, and it was crazy. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, it's coming from his ears. (laughs) So hearing aids were blaring, but um, fortunately it's not that loud. Thank you, Pete, for getting rid of that. All right. Okay. Can you hear me still back there? Okay. Um, Steve, you can still record anyway, so right? All right, good. Excellent. Well... Let me find out where I was. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's, in the parable, he is contrasting two different lives, but it's not that they're building houses, that the content of the house necessarily is vastly different. He's saying one life was built. Another life was built. But the difference between those two lives is what their lives were built upon. He's, and his audience are people who were very steeped in the Old Testament. They were very steeped in the law and in the prophets. They would have been familiar with the teaching that maybe you're familiar with. Maybe you grew up in the church. And maybe you grew up in, in more of a, what we might call, a fundamentalist church or a more a strict conservative church. Maybe you got the notion that if I live a certain way and I do certain things, then that, that gives me assurance that I'm a believer, kind of like the Pharisees and the people on that day, His hearers, they would have gotten the notion... I think it's back. It's the lights, Pete. Um, They would have gotten the notion that if I live according to the teachings of Moses and the prophets, if I live in accordance with the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, then I can have confidence that I'm a child of God. What's Jesus doing here? He's dispelling that. He's saying, you who are in this audience, who are putting your faith and your confidence and your trust in how good of a person you are and how good you're living in your own righteousness, if you're putting your confidence and your faith there, that's the wrong foundation. You're doing the works, but not according to the will of my Father and not because you know me. So you're not really obeying me, You're doing these things thinking that that's what will make you pleasing before me. And he contrasts that with saying, everyone who does these words of mine, everyone who realizes that I am the way, the truth, and the light, that no one comes to the Father except by me, that's the ones who build their house on the rock and are pleasing and who will stand in the storms of life. And so we can see that the difference between these two houses is, is the foundation on which they were built. One really built on, on works done in their own righteousness. One built confidence and faith and knowledge and a relationship with God, seeking to do His will. Jesus is doing away with any confidence in the flesh. What Jesus is saying is that we trust our own knowledge or our own ability or our own way and we build our lives on those things. It's like building your life on sand. In verse 25, Jesus paints the picture for his hearers and he says, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. He says the same scenario Two verses later, he talks about the house that fell. He says, and the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat against that house. He's not telling followers of his that life will be okay if you follow me. Everything will be smooth and hunky-dory. I can't even really know what that means, but it's a saying, right? Everything's going to go okay. I've got to look up the, the meaning for that. What he says is that, in, In life, you're going to have trouble. Whether you put your confidence in yourself, whether you put your confidence in me, storms will come. Storms will come in life. Rain will fall. Floods will come. Winds will blow. They'll beat on the house, on your life. But the difference of whether it falls or not is your foundation. Don't, don't think somehow that because you're a follower of Jesus Christ that means the storms won't come or that don't be surprised if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and storms come and bad things happen. What's important to remember in those times is the foundation for your life, your confidence for life. You know, the wording that Jesus uses is vivid. There's an extreme storm happening here. And there's falling rain. There's floodwaters. The winds, they're blowing. They're beating on the house. This is an extreme storm, the most extreme storm that his hearers could imagine. But the house on the rock doesn't fall. Its foundations are secure. In this parable now, we can see that the The foundation's secure. It's really resting on a relationship with Jesus Christ. Knowing Jesus is the secure foundation. That's the three kind of pictures he's given. The the, the narrow path of following Jesus is a secure foundation. Being rooted and grounded in who Jesus is, that's a secure foundation. And if you're built there, no matter how severe the storm your foundations will be secure. You'll weather the storm. You know, we all have some days that a little rain comes into our life. You know, we can have a bad day. We can have a string of bad days. You, have, you ever had bad days? I you know, I have them all the time, you know. Air conditioning might go out. That's what happened this Thursday in the multipurpose room. The air conditioning, something happened with it. It went out. It was not the best day. You're thinking, what do we do for Sunday? You know, maybe the car breaks down. Your whole family gets sick. That's a little rain. Those aren't those aren't minimal, minimizing those things, but it's a little rain. Uh, rain can come, but sometimes in life more than rain comes, doesn't it? You can have, on top of all those normal rains, floods come, where it seems to be raining in every area of life, and it seems to be way too much for us to endure. Maybe you have a chronic illness. Maybe you have an incurable disease. Maybe you're debilitated physically and you can't function normally any longer. Those are floods. Maybe on top of all those things, you can't function. you got a debilitating disease. You, now, maybe, maybe now you lose your job. Maybe you have financial difficulties that often come with, with the loss of a job. And on top of that, maybe you have relational difficulties. Because, you know, what's one of the biggest stresses in a relationship? It's financial problems. So storms blow. Maybe the money runs out. You're in danger of losing everything you've worked your whole life to, to get. And then other times, maybe there's hurricane force winds in your life, and everything seems like it's going to be blown away, and your life seems to be falling apart. Maybe those are times when, in addition to all those things, now, maybe you lose a loved one. A family member dies. A child dies. And everything that could go wrong is going wrong, just short of losing your life. Jesus is a a realist. He's saying, you're going to have problems in life. But take heart, just like another passage, I've overcome the world. Take heart, if your foundation is secure in me, no matter what it feels like, you will stand firm in me. In this life, and the life to come. Now the storms he's talking about are not just temporal. The storms he's talking about are, I think there's more to it than that because he says the house fell. Talking about a life, the life fell. There's death happens and great is the fall. So what he's saying is there's death and then there's a great death. The house fell. Somebody died. This man died. And great was the fall. Final judgment was great hell which is a very real place completely separate from from all of god's grace and only experiencing the wrath and punishment of god and so there's there's two different ways of ending up but what jesus is saying is that if your foundation is secure you can stand firm not only in this life but in the life to come and and when the storm comes when judgment time comes you will not fall question for us is, where is your hope built? Where's your foundation? What are you living for? When you get angry, when you don't get things, what does it reveal about where you're looking for hope? When when people don't like you and you get angry, it's revealing that, wait a minute, I'm tempted to look to another foundation. When finances are crud, and your life falls apart financially and you get angry and you, you rail against God. What does that reveal about where you're looking? Where's your foundation? This is a radical call. Parables are not easy little trite things. But they are meant to give us assurance and hope. I'm going to read to you a few verses. David, if you remember, we, we just finished the book of Samuel uh, about a month or two ago, David encountered many difficult times. But in in 1 Samuel 2, prior to David even encountering those issues, Hannah, she actually prayed something prophetically prior to David, and we're going to see in a moment fulfilled in David, and then fulfilled in the ultimate rock. But she says, of Jesus, she says, There is none holy like the Lord in 1 Samuel 2, two, For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Later on, David discovered that truth. God kept David through many difficulties, through much persecution and hardship. Am I back in the PAs? Do I have to talk as loudly now? All right, good enough to talk as loud. In Psalm 18, David says he's learned who this God was that Hannah prophesied and prayed about, and he says in the midst of after he has been pursued by Saul, he says, "I think the, the the first part of the verse says when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul." That's the the preface to the psalm. God rescued him from the hand of all his enemies, from the hand of Saul, and he says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. You see, David, he knew God. He had a relationship with God, and and God was his foundation and kept him through those storms. Ultimately, though, what's our hope? What is the hope for each and every person here who has placed their faith in Jesus? It's something even really more secure in a sense. We have a more secure knowledge of who we are in Christ Jesus. It says in Ephesians 2, Paul writes, he says, since then, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God. Built... Wait a minute, we have the same language here, don't we? Built on the what? The foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure... Being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And then listen to what he says. He says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Our hope for doing the words of Jesus, it's we find it here really. He says, you're being joined together. Growing into a holy temple. What does that mean? We we grow to be more holy. More and more like Jesus based on the foundation that we have in Him. And because we are secure in Him, and that's where our faith is, and that's where our hope is, that's where we're looking for our righteousness. If we're looking to Jesus as the foundation for all of life, saying, Jesus, because you have already been made righteous, I no longer trust in my own righteousness. I trust in your righteousness alone. We have a secure foundation. If we say, Jesus, because you've taken the wrath of the Father, there's no wrath that remains against me for not doing your work. So now, based on that foundation, I can live a holy life, pleasing to you, knowing that you are building me into you. You are building me into this this whole foundation. We're being built together into a dwelling place for you so that we can be confident. When we read that passage and it says, everyone who does these words of mine, we can say, by faith in Jesus Christ, that's me. I pray that's the effect for everybody here that it, it challenges to think, am I actually living in accordance with those words? I pray it also stimulates to think, you know what, because Jesus has so loved me and given his life for me, I want to I love him in return. I'm gonna, because I've been a made a member of his family, I want to live for him and everything. Because I know he's my rock, I want to be pleasing to him. I want to do his will. And so I'm going to pray that his will be done in my life. And so let this sermon, let the Sermon on the Mount challenge you. Say, you know what, God, let me just investigate my life and see those areas where I then need to do your will as well. But let me do that based on the solid foundation of trusting in Jesus Christ. If you're not sure where your foundation is, you're not sure if you're really following him, if you're, not, if you're living a good life externally, but you don't know Jesus, there doesn't need to be any more fear today, no matter whether you think you're a Christian or have been a Christian or not. You can be certain. You can say, Jesus... I want to know you. Would you forgive me for living life in my own way, for living for myself, for all the sins I've committed against you? Would you rescue me? Would you save me? Would you make me anew? And it says that all who come to him, he doesn't turn away. He's a secure and sure foundation. Now let's pray together. Amen. Father, I pray that We would look to you as our foundation in life. We would have confidence in you. Pray as well, Lord, for all of us, that we would seek to love you even more in return. That, Lord, those areas where we have not yet been made holy, we would submit to you and seek to do your will based on your foundation. For those who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would, you would give them a foundation in you, Lord, that you would change their hearts, that they would repent. God, for all of us, I pray that we've had faith and confidence in you, our rock. And we have faith in you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.